Good morning, Cornerstone. Uh, I am from Crossroads Presbyterian. You are Cornerstone Presbyterian. Along the way, we'll probably get really confused. Everybody does, but that's okay. So if I say Crossroads, you will interpret that as Cornerstone. And, and then tonight, when I'm at Crossroads, I'll probably start calling them Cornerstone. And um, at uh, Crossroads, where I attend, we have been looking at a series of psalms over the last few weeks. Psalms are Old Testament songs, they are poems. We haven't been looking at psalms that talk about we, us, together as a church. Instead, we've been looking at psalms that talk about I, me, my. We've been looking at personal, individual psalms about my life, my soul, my God. And this is really good to do because it's a chance for all of us to say, how am I going personally with my God? How am I going as an individual with God? What, what does God have to say to me? And so I want to share a little bit about what we're learning at Crossroads with you here at Cornerstone. There you go, I did it. Uh, really nice to be here, to see some old friends, to see some old faces. I used to attend Cornerstone way, way back in the day. And so it's good to be back. Always new people at Cornerstone as well, so nice to see new, new faces. And Crossroads Church, we greet you through me. We greet you and we hope you're going well and, and we want to see you going well and we know that you have the same desire for us. So it, it's good to be in partnership together. Let's pray. Oh Lord, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. In it, you give me everything I need for life and godliness. And so today, this day, I, we, pray to you that you would be giving us what we need. In your word, it says that a person doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. So give us your words today, and let us go from here refreshed and encouraged and eager and ready to do your word. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have Psalm 42 open. Jesus says, Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Shall I say, Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came for this hour. Jesus says, it's why I'm here. Jesus began to be deeply distressed and troubled. He said, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. He fell to the ground and he prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. He prayed, Father, Abba, everything is possible from you, for you. Take this cup from me, yet, however, not what I will, but what you will. Isn't that something amazing, don't you think? Isn't that amazing that in Jesus you see both? Overwhelming sorrow and complete faith. Deep distress to the point of death and, in Jesus, total trust all the way. Isn't it amazing that in Jesus you have both. So we're looking at Psalm 42. To be honest, 
it's a little bit strange. It's, it's, it's up and down. It's, it's hard to follow because it's proclaiming God's good, goodness one minute. Verse 5, verse 8, verse 11, proclaiming God's goodness one minute. Almost talking against God in the next breath, in the next minute. Verse 7, verse 9, verse 10. So it's a little strange, hard to follow, up and down. Until you take this psalm and you put it on the lips of Jesus. Until you take this psalm and you make it his prayer, his song, his words. Rather than making it our prayer, our song, our words first of all, imagine him saying this prayer. Look at it, look at the psalm. Imagine him praying this prayer where God is his rock, verse 9. And God is the one whose waves of judgment sweep over him in verse 7. Jesus, whose soul was deeply distressed, verse 5 and 6, whose bones were in mortal agony, verse 10, who cried out, God, why have you forgotten me, verse 9, but who also said, I will trust in you, my Saviour, not my will but yours be done, verse verse, um, 5. Whose foes taunted him all day long, saying, hey, where is your God? Why hasn't he come to save you? Ha ha, verse 3. And yet he trusted that one day soon he would rise to stand and praise God all day long, verse 11. This psalm is a little strange. It's hard to follow. It goes up and down. It's a yo-yo, emotionally yo-yo. Until it's on the lips of Jesus then it makes so much more sense. Because do you know what this psalm is about? This psalm is about total trust and deep distress. It's actually about total trust in deep distress. And so, it's about Jesus. We see those two things come together so much in Jesus. Uh, not that it fits in perfectly in every way. Uh, it was these sons of Korah, see the heading? Sons of Korah, they wrote it for themselves. So, not that it perfectly fits him in all ways and not that it has nothing to say to you and me as if it's only about Jesus on the contrary it actually has much to say to you and me because it's talking about true trust in deep distress it's actually it's talking about um, continuing faith even in hardship and that has much to say to you and me. It's giving you the possibility of being faithful even when it's really hard to be faithful. It's saying, hey, Cornerstone, that's a possible thing to do. In times of dryness or in times of distress, you don't have to give up. It's possible to keep trusting God. So it has much to say to you and me. It gives us a model of how we do it. It's, 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 it's saying, um, what would you do in those times? What would you say? What would you think in those times? So it has much to say to you and me. So let's look at it together, Psalm 42. I hope you're keen and excited to look at it. But just before we do, just one thing, actually two things. Necessary things. This is just one passage on the issue of suffering and hardship. It's not the only passage in the Bible on suffering and hardship. Many of you know that. In fact, there are whole books of the Bible dedicated to suffering and hardship, and I'm sure you could think of some. And so my sermon with you this morning is in no way trying to say at all about this topic of suffering and hardship and distress. There are many other things that I wish I could say, but don't have the time, and they're not in the passage. There are many other things that I haven't even learnt yet, that I've still got, you know, much more learning to do myself. 
And so it's a necessary thing to say that at the start. You may have some questions or comments after. Come and see me and, and I welcome those. One more thing to say before we get going. The best use of this passage is not to take it and give it to a friend. A friend who is, a friend who is going through a hard time at the moment. A family member who is in chronic pain. That's not the, the best way, I think, to use this passage by sharing it around because the passage is about I, me, my. And so the best use of today's passage is to hear it for yourself, to listen for yourself as God's word for you, for me. Are we ready to listen? Here we go. Let's have a look at verse 1. As the deer pants for streams of water... So my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? My tears have been my food day and night, while people say to me all day long, where is your God? One minute he's dry. The next minute, we're going to see this soon, he's drowning He goes from dry at the start of the psalm to drowning by the end of the psalm. Dry to drowning. And the whole way through, he's been constantly discouraged. So he's not in a good spot, is he? From dry to drowning and the whole way through, discouraged. Um, The image of the deer is this image of being dry, dusty, distant from God. Because the image is unquenched thirst, uh, unsatisfied desire. It's telling us that he wants to be with God, just like a a fragile, graceful deer wants to get to water. He wants to be with God, but he can't get to God, just like that fragile, graceful deer can't get to the water. Some people think that the deer has been chased by dogs and hunters, very English, and that's why the deer is thirsty. Like, oh man, I wish those dogs would leave me alone, but... But the question is, do you see the question there? Is when can I go? When can I get to God? When will I see God? When will this end? And that lets us know that this has probably been a long time. It's been a long journey for this deer. This is the image of a gentle animal, a graceful animal in the middle of a tough, hard drought. And the rivers are dry and the creeks are dry and the usual places where you could be guaranteed to find water, well, not this time, nothing in them. He wants to come to God, but he can't. In this passage, God is called the living God. So he's not a machine. He's not an impersonal force. He's not, certainly not an idol, like a, you know, basically a a made-up God. He's very much alive. That means you can talk to God. You can relate to him. You can hear from him. You can know him. You can be known by him. He can say, Dan, I know you. I know how many hairs are on your head. I I, I know where you were. I I saw you you as you were there in your mother's room. In fact, I knitted you together. See, the living God. You can know him and, and, and he knows you. He's a God who is very much alive. In fact, he's a God who has life in himself. It's, it's actually in him that we all live and move and have our being. Our life actually comes from him. He is the living God and he is the life-giving God, both. The living God and the life-giving God. He is the God who puts life into us from that very first breath and he sustains us all the way through. 
He will keep us going by giving life to us. Isaiah says, even young people grow tired and weary. Even young people will stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. What a vision of the living God. Rather than draining my life, God is able to give me life. Do you know what he is? He is a cool, fresh stream when we need to survive. And so at Crossroads, we've called this series in the Psalms, Refreshed by God. We don't know, we don't have the details, uh, but for some reason, he can't come to God. The psalm writer, he can't get there. In these ancient and biblical times, that meant going down to the temple and worshipping God at a, a physical place called the temple. He can't go there, he wants to, he needs to, but he can't, and so he's a thirsty deer in a time of drought. Water is desperately needed, but the deer just has to wait and, and hope he'll survive through. And that's like our psalm writer. He wants to get to God, but he can't, so he has to wait and hope that he'll get through. Now, if you're here at Cornerstone this morning and you're reasonably fit, and I'm looking around seeing plenty of that, you're quite healthy and you're mostly able to get to church each week, you might find this passage a little bit strange. If you're pretty capable, fairly rich, you might even find this passage a little bit frustrating. You say, what's the deal, man? If you want to get to God, go to God. Stop talking about it and do it. If you want to go and meet with the living God in the temple, why not go down to that great temple? It's a good thing to do. Off you go. I don't know. Ride a bike if you have to. Catch an Uber. Get there however you have to get there. His desires are good, so why doesn't he just go and do his desires? So you might find this passage a little weird or a little strange, a bit frustrating. What's stopping him? But imagine this. Let's, let's do a thought experiment. Put yourself in the shoes... Imagine you're a believer who loves God, you've done so all your life, you love the Lord, you love his church, but the loud noise, the echoey room, the musical instruments, the constant nasal voice of the preacher, sorry about that, these constant sounds, the crowded morning tea afterwards, can actually initiate quite powerful migraines in you doesn't happen all the time, but it can sometimes. Even sometimes you get the colourful auras at the side of your vision. Coming to church can, and often does, result in a painful experience that could last for a few days. Hmm. Or imagine, because of a long-term health problem, you constantly have to budget your energy. You know, just as some people budget money, have we got enough for the week? You have to budget your energy. Have I got enough for the week? Fatigue means that you have to choose either your best friend's engagement party or church. Because you love Christ, you love his people, and you get lots of encouragement from being here, and so you want to do both, engagement party and church, but sometimes you can't. Sometimes you can, but sometimes often you can't. The cost on you can be great. So that just gives you a a New Testament example of what this passage could be about. New Testament in the sense that we're now the temple. We don't go to the temple, we are the temple. I'm dry because of distance. I want to meet with the living God, but when can I? It's too hard. One woman, uh, I read her comments, she, she has connective tissue disease, which causes ongoing pains to shoot around her body. And she said, I know it's incorrect to think that God has more important to deal, 
more important things to deal with than my pain. I know it's incorrect to think that the needs of a suffering world require his full attention and I should just toughen up. I know such thoughts are incorrect and drive me away from God, but I commonly find these thoughts creeping in. I want to meet with the living God, but when can I? Moving away from health. How about a dryness that comes not because of my health and my health keeping... What about a dryness that comes just from the many, 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 many years of plodding on as a Christian? The many, many, many years of just going on as a Christian. The long road of time. That can cause a dryness that brings a distance between me and God, me and God's people. William Cooper wrote the famous hymn about this. And the hymn was called, Oh, for a closer walk with God. And the line goes, Where is the blessedness I knew when I first saw the Lord? Where is the soul-refreshing view of Jesus and his word? It's a confession, that hymn. It's a, it's a, it's a long-term Christian who knows God, who wants God, but has lost the feeling. Can't see it. Anyway, like I said, one minute he's dry and distant from God. The next minute, have a look what happens. He's drowning. Have a look at 6 and 7, from dry to drowning. Verse 6 and 7. My soul is downcast within me, therefore I will remember you. From the land of Jordan, the heights of Hermon, from Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep in the, war, in the roar of your waterfalls. All your waves and breakers have swept over me. Unlike the dry desert, slow, dry desert, this is, an, is a hard, fast trial. It's an overwhelming, suffocating Large-scale trial. And these places here are a little strange to us. We don't really know what, who, you know, to me, it doesn't, doesn't straight away grab me. I don't know what these places are, so I had to do a little bit of research. The heights of Hermon, the land of the Jordan that he mentions there in verse 6, that could be where the great river of the Bible, the Jordan River, begins, up in the mountains. That's the sort of the spring of, of the river. That's where it starts and takes off. And if so, it would go down through canyons, over rapids, waterfalls, it would create a huge surge, a rushing of water, a thunderous sound. And he's saying, that's what I'm going through now. This kind of thing, this, this surge, this trial, image of being overwhelmed, suffocated. Uh, later on in the Bible, did you know Jonah himself, Jonah quoted from this verse. He himself was under great pressure his own ordeal was happening in the sea and he said, verse 6 and 7. And did you notice um, what it says here? God's breakers, his waves, God's waterfalls, his powerful force, his hand is on me. Ultimately, these hard things are from God. Isn't that, isn't that a difficult thing? to reconcile. These things are from God. Now, I've got to be very careful here, so just slow it down a little. Um, we know God isn't evil. We know God isn't the cause of evil. We know God isn't responsible for evil things that occur. But we do know that God made all things. He's in charge of all things. He governs everything according to his will. So, in a sense, these things are from God's hand. Not necessarily directly from his hand as the, as the doer, 
But God does overrule and govern all events for his purposes and his will. And again, it's Isaiah that helps us. Isaiah says, Isaiah, Isaiah says, speaking, you know, God's word, thus says the Lord, I form light and I create darkness. I bring prosperity and I create disaster. I, the Lord, do all these things. And so our psalm writer cries out to God. Why, God? Why have you put me through this? Help me. These are your waves. These are your breakers. They're washing over me. One minute he's dry, the next minute he's drowning. And then throughout it all, he's discouraged. See verse 3? My tears have been my food day and night. You know, you just cut up a tear. Just sitting there, just eating a tear. This doesn't taste very good. Um, bite a tear. Like, that's, that's, that's what he's living off, tears, day and night. And, and um, these people are the ones who are saying, where is your God? And then later on in verse 10, where is your God? Sometimes in Psalms, the enemies will come and they will physically attack. They will, they will physically hurt him. They'll bite him. They'll attack him. They'll trip him. They'll, they'll capture him in a trap and pull him up. Sometimes they'll physically attack, but here it's their words, it's what they say, it's how they speak, and sometimes the words can be even harder to deal with. They put him down, they make him doubt, they make him ask questions. Is God really good? Is God really right? It's his breakers sweeping over you. Is he going to come to help? And they are at it, verse 10, all day long. All day long, day and night, they're there with with their discouraging words. Where is your God? Not just dry, but drowning and throughout it all discouraged. He is a struggling, suffering believer. This psalm writer, a struggling, suffering believer. Um, John Owen was and still is a great theologian in the history of the church. I'm sure Campbell has mentioned John Owen to you before. He's probably, I don't know, he's probably like top 20 or top 50 theologians of all time or something. Um, Massive thinker huge volume of writing on Christian theology. He knew all about the highs and lows of life. He knew all about the ups and the downs, let me tell you. In terms of the highs, he was friends with Oliver Cromwell. He was briefly a member of Parliament in England. He was chosen to preach to the Parliament the day after King Charles I was beheaded. He was Vice-Chancellor of Oxford University He wrote an enormous amount of influential theological books that are still widely studied today. So he knew about the highs. He also knew about great loss. He and his wife, Mary Rook, had 11 children, but only one of them survived into adulthood. Imagine that, to see 10 of your own children die in infancy and childhood. I can't imagine the grief. And I mention him today because he actually spoke of what he called hard thoughts about God. Hard thoughts about God doesn't mean um, difficult theological questions. How can God be in charge of evil and yet not responsible for it? That kind of thing. Not that. Nor does he mean asking God hard questions. Why, God, did you let this happen? Why are your breakers sweeping over me? No, hard thoughts means hard like stone, hard like nails. That's what he meant by hard thoughts. And what he was worried about was that Christians sometimes think hard thoughts about God. We think of God in ways that are untrue. 
He's distant. He's busy. He's away. He's unknowing. Or the big one, he's not a God I can draw near to. He's not a God I can trust. And John Owen was concerned about this and he said, it's not a good way to be. Listen to what he says. The Lord takes nothing worse from the hands of his children than hard thoughts of him. The Lord knows full well what fruit this bitter root will bear in his children, what alienations of heart they will have, what unbelief and turning their back in our walking with him. He says, how unwilling is a child to come into the presence of an angry father? John Owen said, when we have hard thoughts about God, we actually imagine him in ways that he is not. We have a, a false image of God. We don't want that, do we? No way. So how do we avoid that? In our long, dry spells. How do we avoid hard thoughts about God in the overwhelming trials that come upon us? Well, that's what we're going to look at our psalm writer for in the next part. That's what our psalm writer does. He is able to avoid these hard thoughts about God. And so let's have a look at somebody who is um, really refreshed by God in in the way that he lives. Uh, Let's have a look at verse 4. Verse 4. These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I used to go to the house of God under the protection of the Mighty One, with shouts of joy and praise among the festive throng. In a commentary that I was reading this week uh, by a man, John Goldingay, an American professor, he says this psalm gives us three ways to avoid hard thoughts about God. Three ways to to be refreshed by God, even in the middle of our dry spells and overwhelming spells. Three ways to have total trust, even in deep distress. Let yourself go, make yourself think, and pull yourself together. Let yourself go, make yourself think, pull yourself together. Now, I actually think it's a good breakup of the passage, but it's probably a bit harsh. I think in some of the examples I've given today, they're not really an occasion where I'd say, pull yourself together, are they? And so let's keep the breakup that he gives in his commentary, but let's change the headings. Instead of let yourself go, make yourself think and pull yourself together, let's go with lament, remember, preach. How are we going to avoid hard thoughts about God in difficult times? Lament, remember, preach. See verse 4? Even as... He pours out his soul. Even as he, he, he pours forth his feelings there in verse 4. Literally, it says, I pour my feelings onto myself. Isn't that interesting? He's doing this deliberately. He, he's deliberately crying out. He's deliberately complaining. He's deliberately expressing his feelings. He's doing this quite intentionally. If you're a bit of a grammar geek, he's doing this as a reflexive thing. He's doing something to himself. He's pouring out his feelings onto himself. To lament is to face the brutal reality of what's going on in your life and to express that. That's what lament is. To say, this is what is happening to me, this is how I feel, and I don't like it, and I don't want it. That is what it means to lament. 
Lament is not all we do, thankfully. If we only lamented, it would be awful. In fact, that's one good thing about lament. Lament lets us segue into, the, into a future hope. Because a good lament will say, this is not the way things should be, and so I start to think about, well, how should things be? And I start to move into hope. But, but before we get to that future hope, lament is where we have to stop and face up to the things that I've lost. I've lost it, God. I've lost it. I want it back. The good thing that I had was taken from me. I don't feel good. I want it back. That's lament. Or, or Lord, this thing never came to be. That it should have come to be, but it never came to be. Why? Why didn't you let me have it? That's lament. Jesus Christ lamented, didn't he? In his life and ministry, he had the, the full range of human emotions. Happy to talk about that with you after. He was regularly driven to lament, though he trusted God all the way, though he always looked to the future, though everything was in Jesus' hand and he knew all things, he also cried over the lost things of today. He lamented. But as he laments, verse 4, as he pours out his soul upon himself, he also remembers. And that's the second thing. So how are we going to avoid these hard thoughts about God? Lament. Then secondly, remember. See verse 4? Remember. See verse 6? Remember. See verse 8? That's what he's remembering. That's the content of his memory. He hasn't lost his belief that one day he will be able to meet with God. Just as he used to meet with God, it'll happen again. That what he did back then in that place of the temple, one day he'll go to the temple again and meet with God. In, in verse 6, he actually remembers God himself. So he doesn't remember the temple and the great celebration of the temple in verse 4, but in verse 6, he, he remembers God. He actually focuses on, on, on who God is. This is who God is, therefore this is what the future will hold. See, that's the opposite of hard thoughts about God, isn't it? That's the opposite of drawing away from God. He's actually drawing to God in, in this hard time. He remembers who God is himself. Uh, a theologian I've been reading this week in preparation, a man named um, Kelly Capich, he's written a very interesting book called Embodied Hope, and I thought I'd tell you about it. It's actually a book about pain and suffering that Christians face. The reason it's an interesting book is it has a particular focus on physical pain and suffering that Christians face. Long-term physical pain and suffering that Christians face. You know, a, a long bout with cancer or lupus or, or another autoimmune uh, thing or, or various other long-term physical struggles that Christians face. And it, it's a really interesting book because the strategy of the whole book is to do exactly this. To go through and to slow down and to remember. To remember who God is, what he's like and what he's done. And he's writing a book for people who are going through these long-term physical struggles, who are Christians. And so he has a chapter on pain and understanding pain, physical pain. He has a chapter on sin. He has a chapter on Jesus coming into the world in a body. He has a chapter on the cross where Jesus died in his body, a chapter on the resurrection, a new body, and then some chapters on being a church where we are together as the body of Christ. Gently and firmly, kindly and patiently, this book just puts it before us again. This book, not just who is the Lord, but what the Lord has done. So that we can look forward to the day when with the great procession we too will enter his courts. That's what he wants in writing this book. 
with the great procession, with shouts of praise and joy, we, we will be among that festive group as they go into God's kingdom. Listen to um, one story that, that um, uh, Kelly Kapich um, sort of conveys to us. What have I done with it? Have I dropped it along the way? Maybe I won't give you a story. Boo, sorry about that. Anyway, must move on. Um, but, but here, I, I, as I was reading the book, I was so encouraged by it. I thought, what a great thing that, that here is a book written for Christians who are facing this unique struggle, and yet at the same time, these Christians, he's, the, the strategy book is remind, remember, remember what God has done, remember what God is like, remember who he is. So, how do we avoid these hard thoughts? Well, we lament, but then secondly, we remember, but then finally, what else, what else do we um, finally do? Well, as well as remember, we, what is it? Preach, preach. Have a look at verse 5. There, can you see that there? Verse 5. My soul, why are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? preaching. Put your hope in God for I will yet praise him, my saviour and my God. I have a look at verse 11. My soul, why are you downcast? Why does so disturbed within you? Put your hope in God. Have a look at the very next psalm actually, Psalm 43 verse 5. My soul, why are you disturbed within me? Put your hope in God for I will yet praise him, my saviour and my God. You know what he's doing? He's saying, Soul, Dan, I don't know how God is going to carry you through, but I know that he will, no matter how bad it gets. Remember what God has done. Remember what his promises are to you. Remember his actions of the past. No, remember his actions of this week. Just think about the goodness of God to you this week. Soul, remember the promises of the future. And look, soul, he's given you his Holy Spirit. That's a down payment of the future, soul. God's not going to give you his Holy Spirit and then go, mm, actually, no, I'll have that back, sorry. No, the, the, the Spirit is a down payment of all the good that will come. Soul, remember that. But the, the Spirit, the giving of the Spirit is God putting you on lay-by. That's what it is. God's got me on lay-by, soul. Saying to your soul, I don't know how he will do it, but, but I know that one day he will. What a great thing to be able to do. Uh, Self-talk is a, is a huge thing in most sports. If you're running a 100-metre sprint, you've probably got not much time for self-talk during the race. Uh, you've got 10 seconds or whatever it is. Um, but, but I suppose your self-talk comes before the race. You know, come on, I've got this, you can do this. But if you're running long distance, 21 kilometres, 42 kilometres... 250 kilometres or whatever it is, you've got a long, yeah, a lot of time with yourself, just you and your own head. There's a lot of time to talk to yourself. And you say, come on, don't give up. you got this, you can do this, keep going. One more, one more, one more. And you, you're, talk, you're, saying, you're talking to yourself, self-talk. But even then, you don't know for sure. Your leg could fall off. Your heart could stop and you could just drop stone cold dead. That, that can actually happen. But with God, we can know. When we're doing this self-talk, we can know. Because our self-talk is based on his deeds, his promise, the down payment of the Spirit. And so we say, you've got this. Don't give up. 
God will do this. He will carry you through. He preaches to himself here in, in this psalm. And do you notice when he preaches, this is a comment from my wife who's often more um, astute about these things. She says, he's being kind to himself. He's not preaching to himself in a harsh way, saying, come on, you dead dog, don't be so pathetic. He's not saying that. He's saying, come on, soul, you got this. Keep trusting in the Lord. Look to him. He will, br- he will bring you through. He preaches and he's kind when he does it. Cornerstone. Jesus is our saviour, praise God. He's our deliverer. He made a way for us to come to know God and have eternal life. Praise God. Good news. Right? And in this psalm, he's also the model for us. He shows us how we are to live our lives. Total trust in deep despair. His soul was crumbling, but his faith was certain. He fell on the ground. He was so overwhelmed. And yet he said, not my will but yours be done. Are you feeling dry right now? Distant from God? Dusty? As a Christian? Are you feeling overwhelmed by a hard trial? Lament. Remember. Preach. And the God who refreshes your soul, he's going to be with you. Let's pray. Dear Lord God, we are in such need that even though you save us, and you give us eternal life, we still need you to carry us through day by day, week by week, year by year. Forgive us, Lord, for the times where we've had hard thoughts about you. Forgive us for thinking poorly of you, Lord, and not wanting to draw near to you. Lord, in the middle of our struggles and trials, may we remember, lament, may we preach, May we remember all the good things you have done and all the good things you do have in store for us. And we pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to stand and sing, I believe.